Hey there and welcome to the Duncan Pentecostal Church podcast streaming from Vancouver Island here in Canada. And however you have found our podcast, we're so glad you're here. Before we jump into today's message, just a couple things I want to let you know. If you go to our website, www.duncanchurch.com, you're going to find a couple easy ways where you can connect with us. We have an online connect card you can fill out. Maybe let us know where you're listening from and check off the option to receive our what's happening email. We send this out once a week. It's a great way to stay connected with everything that's going on here at the church and even online. Apart from that, there is a give button. So if you're feeling led, you can do that right online through our website. You can also find us on Facebook and YouTube. We are so glad you're tuning in and we are believing that God's going to do something special in you through today's message. Enjoy. Hey, we, uh, we finished the book of Zechariah last Sunday, and you know what that means? That means a new book. So we are going to be this morning beginning a new book, which we do have a slide for you somewhere here. There you go. Oh, we got to clear the prop off of that one. For some reason, it didn't clear. So um, anyway, because what's happening? Well, we have a new book. That actually makes sense. Um, but uh, we're starting a new book today. How many of you like kind of action movies, fast-paced kind of stuff? Anyone here? Yeah, you like kind of, you know, how many of you would rather watch the movie than read the book, if you're honest? Yeah, oh yeah, there's some of us, yeah, Megan's really like, oh yeah, yeah, definitely, right? You're like, you're kind of, your motto is like less words, more action maybe. Um, You know, our new book that we're beginning this morning, in this book, in the English Standard Version, which is what we preach from, 35 times the word immediately is used. Other translations, it's used up to about 40 times, depending on the translation. This book was written for ADHD people. So, um, so this is like kind of a fast-moving, changing all the time. Any ideas, by the way, maybe from the picture even, what we might be beginning today? I'll give you, I'll give you a little bit of a heads up. This book, um, or sorry, this picture, uh, is actually the Sea of Galilee. And so Dana, when she was in Israel a number of years ago, she took that picture. And so she, so some of you are kind of going, oh, how many of you were here for the Gospel of Matthew? When we went through the Gospel of Matthew, put up your hand. Not a lot of you, which is perfect, because I want you this morning to turn to the Gospel of Matthew. And then I want you to turn to the right to the Gospel of Mark. Because we, this morning, are beginning the Gospel of Mark. So, so that's where we'll be this morning. If, you, um, if you'll have Bibles all around you, I'll, I'll explain kind of how to get there in a moment. But the Gospel of Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark? Any guesses today? Oh, well, actually, you know what? You get extra points, Megan. She actually said John Mark. And that's actually really well done. That's, that's, you're, that's good. So Mark actually, believe it or not, wrote the Gospel of Mark. Um, it's not actually written anywhere in the book that he wrote the Gospel, but there is overwhelming evidence from early church fathers that, that it was written by Mark. And so you might be wondering, well, who is Mark? Megan, bo- brownie, like bonus points here. She called it right from the start. Uh, Mark was also known as John Mark. So you maybe heard of him. He was not an apostle of Jesus. Some of you thought he maybe he was not an apostle. He is in the book of Acts fairly often. You'll see his character from time to time in the book of Acts. If you remember, um, there was somebody that kind of bailed out on Paul and Barnabas on their missionary journey. It was this guy. It was John Mark. And so it was him. John Mark as well, he's a, a, a well-known character in Acts. In fact, in Acts chapter 12, if you remember the story of Peter being miraculously delivered from the prison, Right? Do you remember that story where he's in prison and then the angel comes, he thinks he's asleep, and he's like, I'm actually set free. If you remember, where, where does he go when he's set free from prison? 
You're good, Kevin. You're good. <laughs> he goes to a home where they're having a prayer meeting for Peter to be released from prison. And it's actually, we're told in Acts chapter 12, verse 12, that it's actually John Mark's mom's house that he goes to. So, but, it, but John Mark did probably live there as well. So, um, so he, that's where Peter went. In fact, it's even commonly accepted that Peter, the apostle Peter, had led um, Mark to the Lord and mentored and discipled him. Uh, Peter, in his letter, actually calls Mark, uh, he says, Mark, my son. That's how he refers to him, my son. So this kind of, you can see there was a relationship of, um, of kind of like father-son mentoring discipleship kind of relationship that went on. And, and, and even historical documents even call Mark's gospel, um, they sometimes refer to it as Peter's gospel. It's interesting because they feel that there was such an influence on Mark's life from Peter that they feel that if, if Peter had written the gospel, this probably would have been it kind of thing. So it's very influenced from Peter. You might be wondering, you know, if you're familiar with the Bible or church, you might be wondering, why do we have four gospels? Because we do. We have Matthew, and we're studying Mark. We're beginning Mark. And then we have, what's the other two? Luke and John. So we've got four gospels. Why is it? Is it because they all say, you know, like they, they, they um, are kind of going against each other or something? You know, it's a battle for who's got the better gospel. It's, it's really because it's four different angles or perspectives on one person, on Jesus. Just this last week, how many of you have Instagram? Any of you have Instagram out there? Yeah, so Instagram. I, I follow different um, things on Instagram, and one of those is a surfboard company called Channel Islands. And one of their surfers won a contest, and it had this clip of the surfer riding a wave and doing this one move. It was like a second and a half long clip. And then the, it was just a video, and it shows another one, and I'm like, oh, wow. And then another one, and I'm like watching, I'm like, it's all the same wave, the same surfer on the same. It's, it was six different videos of the identical same move but from different angles. And it was kind of interesting because from each angle, I was like, oh, that was a wait. And I was like, wait a minute, that was all the same. I watched it again. It was the same person doing the same move on the same wave. It was no different, but six different perspectives. And in many ways, the gospels are similar, that it's four different perspectives or angles on Jesus, four different views to kind of show us some of Jesus. Of course, Matthew, if you studied Matthew with us quite a number of years ago as a church, we went through the gospel of Matthew. And Matthew was written primarily to, do you, do you know who? Jews. It was written primarily to Jews. It is filled with um, Old Testament scriptures and prophecies about Jesus, showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament of the prophecies. And, and so Matthew was written to Jews. Um, Luke was written to Greeks, and so there's a strong emphasis on the humanity of Jesus, yet the deity in his humanity. So uh, John was written, in fact, to the whole world. So it kind of applies to everybody. It's a great book of uh, perspective. Look at Jesus for anybody and everybody. Now, the Gospel of Mark was actually specifically written to Romans. I didn't know that until I began studying for the book. It was written to Roman people. And Romans were very much like you and I, very similar kind of people. They were unfamiliar with Jewish customs. They were people like, that liked action. How many of you like action, right? We already asked this, right? You know, how many of you like the movie Gladiator? Yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, it's really, oh, yeah, you know, a bit of blood and guts. You know, we like kind of some of that stuff, right? Romans, we're very similar. Romans, of course, had the Colosseum where gladiator things took place. And so, you know, this is what the book's going to kind of, we're even going to see in the book, there's going to be a demon-possessed guy that's naked, running around, tearing chains apart. This is kind of some of, some of the stuff that you'll see in the Gospel of Mark. But Romans were, in many ways, very similar to us, a very type A culture, kind of get-or-done kind of people, quick pace. They really, they, they really placed a, a premium on performance. And so what Mark does in his gospel is he paints Jesus. The picture that he gives us, the perspective and the angle of Jesus is that of a doer. 
a worker. It's really the theme of the book. The whole theme that Mark wants us to pick up in the Gospel of Mark is to see Jesus at work as the servant of God. That's the key theme of the book. Jesus at work as a servant of God. He's getting us to see this, which I want to, um, I want to quote, just, just read to you from one of the commentaries. J. Sidlow Baxter is his name. He says this. He wants you to see, Mark wants you to see, that what Jesus did proves who he was. What he wrought authenticates what he taught. The mighty works verify the startling words. Watch him at work and marvel at this supernatural wonder worker. That will convince you. The idea being this, that it will convince you that this is more than just any servant or worker. This is truly God in the flesh. And so what we're going to see is that Mark focuses, in this gospel, Mark focuses much more on Jesus, what Jesus did rather than what Jesus said. So there's no, there's no sermon on the mount in the gospel of Mark. There's very little, actually, of Jesus talking and teaching. It's more about kind of what people were doing. So if you have Bibles, all in the seats around you are Bibles. You need a Bible to follow along. Let's open them up to the Gospel of Mark. You can use your phone if you use your phone or a Bible around you. It's going to help you, though, for sure. If you, um, if you want to follow along, you can use a Bible. There should be some in the seats around you. Does anyone need a Bible? Because we do have some at the back as well. We have extras, just to make sure everyone has one. I've got a Bible here if anyone needs a Bible. Do you need a Bible? Okay, I'll give you my Bible. There we go. So, so to get to the Gospel of Mark... Turn about three-quarters of the way through the Bible. Um, near the end of the Bible, you're going to hit the New Testament. You'll hit Matthew or maybe Luke or John, somewhere on there, and that's where you're close to the Gospel of Mark. Um, if you're using one of our church Bibles, it's page 836, because it's the same Bible that I have. Uh, and so let's, yeah, turn to the Gospel of Mark. And this morning, I've titled my message, Getting Started. Getting Started. Why don't we pray before we look at getting started? Lord, we thank you so much for your word. God, on this Thanksgiving Sunday, we are thankful, obviously, that you came. That, God, you came in the flesh as Jesus. And, Lord, we thank you, God, for your scriptures that teach us and open our eyes to see more of you. I pray that today you would instruct us, lead us, guide us, give us an understanding, Lord, of even how this book, written almost 2,000 years ago now, can actually transform our lives still today. That it's the living word of God. Speak to us, challenge us, change us, I pray. Amen. All right, let's begin the Gospel of Mark. Chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So obviously this is where it all gets started. The beginning is what we're told. This is, this is where it all gets happening. And if you notice right off the top, Mark, because, because he's really focused on Jesus as a servant, we're not going to find any of the birth narratives here. We're not going to get any genealogies. There's no way in a manger that we're going to find in the Gospel of Mark. Because if you think about it, you don't need to know about a servant's history, where they came from. You just want to know what the servant did. And so that's where Mark kind of just jumps right in. There's none of that kind of precursor. And so verse 1, he packs with all these details about Jesus, the servant of God. I mean, you could spend weeks alone on this one verse, but because Mark moves really quick, I'm going to do my best to move us quickly through this book as well. All right? And so Mark starts here. It's packed. He starts with this. He starts or begins with this word. He says, the beginning of the, what does it say? Gospel. Now, gospel literally means, in the Greek, the word means good news. That's what it literally means. Good news. Good news. It was actually, um, the word was most commonly used to speak about a Roman emperor or a king. So it was a, it was a common word that would have been, obviously, in the Greek, they would have known what this word was. 
And they would use this word, they would say good news, it was a Greek word, evangelion. And they would shout that when it was like maybe a victory. They would be saying, good news, there's a victory that we've encountered. Or, or there's the birth of a, of a new king. Or there's, or there's uh, enthronement of a new king. They would say, good news. And so what we see right off the start is that Mark is kind of subversively announcing that there's a new king in town. That's kind of like if you tie it in with what they would have heard. There's a new king in town. Who is this new king? Well, Mark tells us. Jesus Christ, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Good news. This king, his name is Jesus Christ. Jesus is simply the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua. It means literally the Lord is salvation. God is salvation. That's what it means literally. Christ, Christ isn't his last name. He's not Mr. Christ. Okay, if you're wondering, that's not, it's, he, Christ is basically his title or his office, and in the, in the Greek, it would literally um, be translated or understood as the anointed one. There's something special about this Christ. Uh, in the Old Testament, they would have called him the Messiah. It's the same kind of word. The, the, that, that's kind of what it would be understood as. And so we get right off the top, we get, basically you can see Mark is saying this, good news. God is salvation because the anointed one, the Messiah, is here. That's kind of what he's establishing right off the top. And so you kind of go, okay, well, wait a minute. What makes this Jesus Christ guy so special? What makes him, you know, the king, this coming king? And what, what, what means that he can bring self, God his salvation and this Messiah stuff? Well, what does Mark say next? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What's it say? The Son of God. This qualifies him for everything. That's what this statement is. Son of God, we read that and we think, well, it's like, you know, like my son's here this morning. Mike is here from Calgary this morning. He's the son of Peter, Okay. But, but it's different. If you were to say son of God, in their context, they would right away, it means equal with God. It means equal with God. You could actually read it as God the son is essentially what this is communicating. I mean, if it were, if it were just me, it's the son of Lewis, right? That's, that's what it would, it would be in my case, which that's not good news. You could be like, hooray, it's Peter. <laughs> right, what's, right? I, I can't save anybody. I'm nothing special in that sense. I could die for you and it would be a nice gesture, but it wouldn't help you with the main problem. And the main problem is sin. And we need forgiveness of it. And so here's where we're going to see. The first thing that we're going to see about getting started with this Jesus is the preparation. So the first thing we're going to see today, the preparation. And first we'll see the setup. All right? Verse 2. Look at verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah the prophet, he wrote things about Jesus he was around 500 years before Jesus ever came. So there's something that Mark's communicating here. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, he says this, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. So we need to understand, this was prophesied, talked about long before it ever happened. We need to understand that Jesus' coming was not random. Jesus' coming to this earth was not by chance or unforeseen. He mentions here prof, uh, the Isaiah the prophet. All the prophets, not just Isaiah, all the prophets in some way spoke and looked toward this coming Jesus Christ. In fact, the whole Old Testament looks towards and points towards the coming of Jesus Christ. Everything, it all spoke about his birth, that he'd be born of a virgin. It said when he'd be born, it told us where he'd be born. It even told us in the Old Testament, it spoke about the family that he'd be born to. He'd be a son of David, King David. It prophesied all that. It even, as Isaiah mentioned here, even spoke about the person that would come before he came as king. 
The, per, the, 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 one, the forerunner he talks about here. My messenger, he says, who will prepare your way. We'll look at him in a moment. It's talked, the Old Testament, the prophets, they spoke about the life, the death, the resurrection. All of it was laid out ahead of time. What we need to see is that it was all set up. It was all set up. This was all totally set up. Everything was preparing for the coming of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It was a setup. And what I want you guys to know is that the same is true for you. Do you know that? The same is true for you getting started with Jesus. It's a setup. You've been set up. The fact that you're here, gotcha! <laughs> right? You, it's, it's a setup. You've you got to see this. Like From the very start, God has been pursuing you. God has been after you. This was planned just as Jesus' birth was planned hundreds, in fact, thousands of years before it ever happened. Do you know what? God says the same thing about you coming to know him. He set it up way before, way before. It's why he came. In fact, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 and 5 says this, even before he made the world. Do you get this? Before he made the world, God loved us. That's you. That includes you. And God chose us, which includes you, in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. You've been set up. There's no other way to put it. You've been set up. Just like the Jesus coming was all set up, you have been set up. Jesus came to make a way back to the Father, back into relationship with God. And you are why. He came. It's a setup. You've been set up. So first, God sets it all up. And the second preparation to getting started with Jesus is straightening out. So continuing now from verse 2. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, a, a forerunner or a messenger, some people refer to them as an advance man, was always sent out before a king came. And that, that advance man, that messenger that would prepare the way, would go ahead of the king and would make sure a couple things. They would make sure that the road was clear, right? So they would make sure there was no large rocks or potholes, things that would stop the king's chariot or carriage from getting to the town. They'd also make sure there's no trees maybe falling across. They would also make sure there would be safe travel. They would prepare the way for the king to come. Make sure there would be safe travel for the king to get there. They would also make sure the people were ready. Hey, by the way, the king's coming. Make sure that you're ready for the king. That's what they would do. These messengers, these advanced people that would go out ahead of time. This was, this was a man named John the Baptist that did that. But I want us to think about this here. What is being straightened out right now in your life? What has God been doing right now in your life to prepare the way for Jesus Christ? What has he been doing? All in preparation for getting started with Jesus, making a way for Jesus into your life. Maybe it's an event that has happened in your life, something that's taken place. Maybe it's people that God has brought into your life. This past week, I actually had a meeting in my office with a couple, a couple people that it was obvious that God had set up this one person to come to know him. They had, they had met uh, this, this person from our church and, and then this person from our, just the circumstances. And I was like, this is totally God been straightening out, making a path for Jesus to come into this person's life. And we talked and we, we talked through how God had been doing all this working and I was like, it's a setup. Like God's been after you. And, and it was so beautiful as this person was like, yeah, you know, and they, they've surrendered their life to Jesus. It's beautiful. I love it. And it was just such a picture of this that Jesus has been doing this work, preparing things 
for him to make a way into their life. Maybe it's trials, maybe it's life circumstances, whatever it might be. But God is using that to straighten out the path for Jesus and children. Maybe even as a follower of Jesus, already you are a follower, and God is trying to get through in some way. And he's making straight his paths. He's preparing you for a move of Jesus in your life. How is he preparing you? I want you to think about that this morning. So there's a setup, there's a straightening out, and the third preparation needed to get started with Jesus is simple sinners. Simple sinners. I needed an S, so I said simple sinners. We're going to talk about that in a moment. Look at verse 4. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So John, this, this man John, was also known as John the Baptist. Doesn't mean that he went to like the Baptist church down the road. That's not at all what he means. What it means is that he baptized people. It might be easier to think of him as John the Baptizer, perhaps. This was the forerunner, the messenger, the advance man for the king that was coming, for King Jesus. And how did he make a straight path? How did he prepare the way for Jesus to come into people's lives? What did he do? He ultimately opened people's eyes to sin. He, he, that's what he did. He said, listen, you've got a problem in your life. It's called sin. You see, the primary enemy that King Jesus would battle was going to be that of sin. That's why he was coming to battle. And sin, is, it's the great enemy that separates all of us from God. And, and you, you know, the first step ever in battling an enemy is, first of all, it's basically recognizing who the enemy is, right? You got to know who you're fighting. And sin, we need to understand, sin is all of our enemies. Sin is all of our greatest enemies. You know, and, and sometimes, you know, I'll talk to people and they think, well, I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. And we, we, we set up in our mind something like a morality ladder, it's like a ladder of morality. It's like God's at the very top and the worst person ever is at the very bottom. And we kind of set God at the top and then we kind of go, okay, well, you know, underneath God, I'd put maybe, maybe Mother Teresa. She's a pretty fantastic person. You know, she's pretty close maybe in her morality towards God. And, I, you know, there's other people. And, and then we kind of place ourselves somewhere on that ladder and we go, well, I'm pretty good. I'm not as bad as so-and-so. So I put myself maybe about here on the ladder and and we create in our mind a bit of an idea of, well, this good enough kind of line, this morality ladder line. And the question needs to be asked, well, where's the line of good enough where they make it, but they don't? Do you know what I'm saying? What, what, what says, well, I'm better than so-and-so? What, where's the good enough line? Well, the good enough line is told to us in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. The New Living Translation puts it this way. It says, for everyone, so who? Oh, shoot. Everyone has sinned. We all, how many? All. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Think of God's glory. God's glory is perfect, is it not? Is there anything about God that is not perfect? No. God's glory, there's nothing lacking. It's perfection. And so his glorious standard, the ladder of morality, if you want to use that idea, is perfection. And, and it says here in the Bible that everyone has sinned. We all fall short of that standard that he set. And so notice to prepare for King Jesus, what did John the baptizer do? He pointed out their sin, and then he called them to do three things. That text told us three things that he called them to do. Repentance, <laughs> baptism, and confession. That's what was happening. Repentance literally in the Greek, the word literally means a change of mind, to change your mind. Because when you change your thinking about something, you change your mind about something, 
what it does is it automatically changes your behavior. And so he says that's where it's got to start. You change how you think about sin, how it relates to your life, how it affects your life, and it will change the way you live. The second thing he told them to do is baptism. And we know what baptism is, but it was slightly different. John's baptism was slightly different than what we would consider to be Christian baptism or the baptism of Jesus. You see, John's baptism was really preparatory. In other words, it was preparing people. It was, it was, it was, it was a, a baptism of repentance, we're told. And so it, it showed a person's desire to repent or to change their sin. If you think about Christian baptism, it's, it's not a baptism necessarily of repentance, but I think Christian baptism is more a baptism of celebration, right? It shows that, that by faith in Jesus, those sins that we want to be rid of are paid for. They're done, right? It's accomplished. So it's more of a celebration. Our, our life has been changed. We, we, we share in the death and in the resurrection of Jesus. We have new life. And then the third thing he called them to was confession. Confession is basically just, just admitting that I'm wrong. It's admitting that, I, that I'm a sinner, that I'm not perfect, that I make mistakes, and therefore, I need a Savior. These were ways that John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus. You know what? As I was studying this in my own morning time a number of months ago, you know what really impacted me, what God really spoke to my heart, was where all of this took place. Where does it say in verse 4? Look at your Bibles in verse 4. Where does it say that it took place? In the wilderness. And as I was studying it in my morning times, I felt like the Lord speak to me, and he was like, Peter, it's in the wilderness. Sometimes we have this idea that we've got to get out of the wilderness. Do you know what I'm saying? We've got to fix ourselves up. We've got to make ourselves somewhat ready for God, clean ourselves up a bit. Especially when you think about Christians and baptism. Oftentimes when somebody gives their life to Jesus, they'll say, well, I'm not ready yet to get baptized. I'm not good enough. It's the whole point of baptism. It's showing that you're not good enough, but Jesus is. You're identifying with him. And in the wilderness, isn't that interesting? In the wilderness, you know, the wilderness in the scriptures is a picture really in many ways of, it's not a picture of greatness, all right? Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. The wilderness is oftentimes a picture of loss. It's oftentimes a picture of death. Uh, it's oftentimes a picture of just kind of aridness and not life. But this is what God was speaking. He says, Peter, that's where people were prepared for Jesus, in the wilderness. And here's the thing, you don't have to make it out of the wilderness before experiencing the life-changing power of Jesus. People were baptized in the wilderness. Lives were changed in the wilderness. And maybe right now you're here this morning in this building, maybe you're joining us online and you feel stuck in a wilderness right now. And I want you to know this. I believe God's saying to you today, listen, it's in that place that I want to meet with you. That can prepare you and set you up for what I want to do in your life, for the coming of Jesus into your life. When I talk, you know, here, I mentioned the simple sinner's thing. I want to mention something about that because, like I say, the, the S needed to work, and so I did simple. Really, what I want you to think about with the word simple is more humble. Um, humble, I think, is maybe the better terminology there because everything about this scene is kind of humbling. Something we need to understand is that these are Jews. We tend to read the Bible and we put ourselves into the, uh, into the picture and we think, oh, that's just like me going into the wilderness to get baptized. Probably maybe one or two people, maybe nobody in this room right now is actually Jewish. And so just a heads up, if you're not Jewish, if you're not a Jew, you are a Gentile. These people going to get baptized by John were 100% Jews. These are Jews. They're all going to John to be baptized. And you might think, well, what's the big deal? Well, it's, it's a huge deal because these Jews, what they're doing is, is he was calling them to repent, to be baptized, to confess their sins. It's in the wilderness, which Jews would have most definitely attributed 
to being, uh, you know, understanding with Israel, their, their ancestors walking through this place in the wilderness, these Jews are coming also to the Jordan River. The Jordan River was, we might think now, like if you go to Israel, it's like, I want to get baptized in the Jordan River, and it's all exciting, right? That's where Jesus got baptized, which we'll see in a moment. The Jordan River is a mud puddle. It's nothing nice. Like, we've got the Cowichan. They have the Jordan. The Jordan is, the only time the Jordan is really nice is when it's at flood stage. You can't really baptize people in the Jordan at flood stage. It's like, I baptize you. Oh, man, we lost another one. Right? It's like, you know, who's next? Uh, who wants to come? Right? Like, it's, it's raging. At, and that's the only time that the Jordan is kind of something special. It's kind of just a mud puddle. But do you know what was the most humbling part about what's going on here? Is that baptism wasn't new or unfamiliar to a Jew. It wasn't. We think, oh, this was a new thing. It wasn't new. In fact, ba- baptism to a Jew, they, they, there was other times and circumstances where a person would have been completely dunked under the water even and brought up out of the water. Do you know, though, who this was reserved for? Any guesses? Anybody? It was reserved for Gentiles. So a Gentile that wanted to become a Jew had to go through certain rites. If you were a man, you had to be circumcised, and there would be other things you'd have to do. The final step for a Gentile to become a Jew was baptism. That's what they would do. That's what they would practice. The rabbis and says they would practice this act of baptism. This is extremely humbling for a Jew to now be associating themselves as a Gentile in a sense. Recognizing and realizing I'm not right with God. That's how they considered every Gentile not to be right with God. They weren't right with God. They, they, they would consider Gentiles, non-Jews as as horrible. I mean, they call them dogs sometimes. It was horrible how they viewed a Gentile, a non-Jew. But here, these Jews are basically associating themselves basically with Gentiles. They're essentially saying, I'm as bad as a Gentile. I mean, this is as humbling as it could be. But they're going, you know what? I'm not right with God, so I'll do whatever is necessary to prepare for this king that's going to come. Even more humbling, even you think about John, this, this character. I mean, Look at verse 6. It describes him. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair. How many of you, anybody here worn camel's hair? I imagine it's pretty, pretty itchy. It stinks. Camels don't smell good. So he's wearing this horrible outfit, and he has a leather belt around his waist, so he's kind of got the 80s look going on. He probably had teased hair because it was like matted and, you know, it looked very 80s. And he ate locusts and wild honey. So if you really want to get a picture of this John guy, picture some crazy weirdo. Seriously. I mean, he's a full-on, like, hippie of his day in a sense. I mean, he'd probably be really cool and trendy today, let's be honest. Like, <laughs> they'd be like, that guy's awesome. But this guy was a weirdo in their day. And he also, we're told what he ate. You know what he ate was, was it was a poor person's diet. That's what a poor person would have had to eat. Locusts and wild honey. Locusts and wild honey. Now, locusts, of course, they were kosher, so it's a good thing. If you're wondering if you, if you maybe adhere to a very Jewish strict diet, you can eat locusts. You're free to eat locusts because they are safe. They're allowable by the Jewish law, so feel free. I was actually going to order some. I looked on Amazon. All I could find was this, so I just, I have a picture. This was all I could find. Um, I so badly wanted to get locusts for all of us this morning to give it a try. The locust is just a large grasshopper, and so, but all of them were, so you can see that one there, it says for reptiles and birds and then the other ones i found are for turtles and for chickens and i'm like i shouldn't feed this to our people i don't know if 
Don't show them the can. Yeah, I guess that's the trick, hey? Just put the locusts on the seat. And, <laughs> and the wild honey, I mean, the wild honey, I, I can only imagine was probably to help wash the locusts down. I don't know. I mean, it's like, you know, like a spoonful of sugar, right? A spoonful of honey helps the locusts go down. I don't know. Like, just the picture here, though. This guy is a very, it's a humbling scene. Everything about this. And this John the Baptist guy, I mean, Sometimes, you know, when we get baptized by someone, it's kind of like, well, I want so-and-so to baptize me. This isn't someone that you'd probably look at and be like, I want that guy to baptize me. Like, this is not a Billy Graham. But even, you know, strange as this guy John was, and as humble and as low as he was, you know what he said? He said he needed to be lower still. Other gospels tell us that. He said that Jesus needs to increase, I need to decrease. Here in Mark's gospel, in verse 7, it says that he preached. And this is what he said. He said, after me, obviously talking about Jesus, comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. You see, in ancient Israel, a disciple performed many menial tasks for their master, for their teacher. All kinds of things that they would be required or expected to do. But do you know what the one task that a disciple was never expected to do was to untie the sandals of their master or their teacher? That was reserved for slaves. And John is saying here, I'm not even worthy of that, of the lowest kind of service for this king. I can't even do that. He goes on in verse 8. He says, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John's baptism was a, was a baptism of repentance. Uh, you know what? John's baptism really just showed or brought the desire to change. And you know what he says? He says, that's all my baptism can do. This baptism of the one that's coming, Jesus he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Mine can bring the desire to change. But he talks about how Jesus will bring the power to change. It'll be a different baptism. And he just elevates and lifts Jesus up. And let me just say this this morning. You know, if you're here, if you're joining us online and you want to get started with Jesus, you need to understand this. It's all a setup. You've been set up. God's working. He's chasing you down. He's after you. Before the creation of the world, he loved you. He chose you. Chose you. He came for you. And so I want you to think this morning, what, what has he been straightening out in your life? What has he been making a clear path, preparing the way for Jesus into your life? Why don't you just today humble yourself and admit that, you, that you're a simple sinner in need of a Savior? You see, John paved the way, but we're going to see that Jesus is the way. As we see, secondly, the process now to getting started with Jesus. So first we saw the preparation. Now we see the process. And the first thing we see is that we must believe. So the focus now shifts from John onto Jesus. Look at verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now you might be wondering, like, why, why did Jesus need to get baptized? Do you, do you wonder that? I mean, John's baptism specifically was a baptism of repentance. What did Jesus need to repent of? Nothing. He was perfect. He was without sin. So why did he need to be baptized? There's really two key reasons. And the first was this, is to be identified with sinful humanity, with sinful man. You see, as the servant king, he wouldn't, he wouldn't make his subjects do something that he wouldn't do himself. And so what did Jesus do? He came fully as man human, baby and all, right? He went through the toddler years. He went through the teenage years, through puberty, through pimples. He went through it all. He did it all. 
the works. I mean, if I were God, how many of you are like, if I were God, I would just be like, just, just, I don't know, not beam me up, Scotty, because I'm going down, but, but, you know, it's like, just make me the, like, get me past all that awkward stage. Put me into 22. Like, let me be 22 and start it, like, get through all that stuff. But no, not Jesus. He, he wanted to identify with sinful humanity in every way as the servant king. And so, so, you know why he came as a baby? Because he came as a human, because he walked through it. He can look at every single one of us now in the eye, on the face of this earth, and he can tell every single one of us, I know what you've gone through. I know what you've gone through. I was raised just like you. I've been through the same struggles. I've been through the same temptations that you have faced. I identify with you. In fact, we're going to see next week, we're going to look at the temptation of Christ. You know what we're going to see is that his temptations were far worse than what we would even face. We'll talk about that next week. But he'll say that. He says, I identify with you. Even when he hung on that cross, the Bible's clear. He didn't deserve it. He didn't have to even hang on that cross. He could, have, he could have at a moment's notice said, I'm done with this, get me out of here, and he could have called thousands upon thousands of angels to set him free from that cross. But he hung on that cross. Why? To identify with sinful humanity, to identify with us. He was perfect, but he took the wrath and the judgment of God that we deserved in our place. And so, so Jesus is doing here what is consistent with all of his ministry. He's basically saying this. He's saying, basically, are sinners baptized? Then I want to get baptized too. Because I want to identify with sinners. Even though I'm not one, I want to identify with them. And so baptism now for us, obviously, is a picture or a symbol of us identifying with him. That's, that's what baptism is now for. We're identifying with Jesus, that by believing in him, that by having faith in him, we now share in his death and in his resurrection. Romans 6 Verses three to five, it makes it so clear. It says this, Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives since we have been united with him in his death. We will also be raised to life as he was. Do you see how baptism now is just a picture of us identifying with him? He identified with us, and now he says, now this is how you can identify with me. Baptism is one of those ways, the symbols, that we have new life in him, forgiveness of sins. Our old life is dead, buried with him in the grave, and when we come up out of that water, we're raised. It's a symbol of us being raised to new life in Jesus. Now the second key reason that Jesus was baptized is found in the next verses. This is where we see secondly in the process that we must be empowered. So first of all, we need to believe and then we be empowered. Verse 10. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. So he was baptized to be identified with sinful humanity, right? That was the thing we just talked all about. But you know what? He was also baptized not just to be identified with sinful humanity, but also here it shows us to be identified to sinful humanity. Do you catch the difference here? Think about it. Think about those that were present at the baptism because there was many that were going out. All, we're told all, people all over from Judea, right? And and what was the other area? I don't know, somewhere else. Um, What was it? Nazareth, is that what it says? I don't think it was, I think Jesus came from Nazareth. Anyways, anyway, all these Jews are going out to be, they're from very Jewish towns and areas. That's, that's the point. All these Jews are out there. They're getting baptized. 
And then what happens here? Then they see Jesus get baptized. And what happens? Hey, wait a minute. That didn't happen when I was baptized. Did, Billy, did that happen to you? That didn't happen to me? No. Right? What do you think? This is, this is what God's doing here. He's identifying with sinners, but he's also identifying to the sinners, who he is. Do you see what's happening? Literally to the point where the heavens are torn open and the Spirit of God descends on him in the form of a dove. And then we hear this audible voice. They'll be like, who's this guy? What is going on here, right? They're seeing these things happen. And they go, who is this? And there's a voice. I'll tell you who it is, basically. Right, that's basically what's happening. This is my beloved son. With him I'm well pleased. Actually, I think it says very. No, just well. Right? With him I am well pleased. That's, and so he's identified to them. Do you see what's happening here? God's identifying. But I want us to notice specifically, this is what I want us to really look at here, is what happens with Jesus' baptism in verse 10. He's baptized, he's brought up out of the water, and what takes place? It says that the heavens were torn open and the Spirit descended on him. Jesus, we need to understand this. Jesus began his ministry baptized in water and baptized in the Holy Spirit. He, he, he came to earth, he emptied himself of his privileges of being God. So he was fully God still. He didn't empty his godliness out of his life, but he set aside his right to be God. Because we, we sometimes think that, oh, he's, he's God, he can do all that thing. No, he laid that aside. He laid all that aside. He was still fully God, but he was fully man, and he laid aside the deity the privileges of being God. He needed the anointing and the empowering of the Holy Spirit to carry out his ministry. I'm not sure why or how we would ever think that we can do this life without the empowering of the Holy Spirit in our lives. God, listen, God wants to give you a new life, but he also wants to give you the power to live that new life. He wants to give you both. It's called the Holy Spirit, his spirit empowering you. And you just need to ask, say, God, I can't do this. I can't do this. I need your power. He says, good. Thanks for asking. I'm going to give you my spirit to walk in the power. You see, the picture we have here, these heavens being torn open over Jesus at his baptism, it's true for us as well. You see, when we put our faith in Jesus, when we believe upon him, do you know what it does? It opens up the heavens over our lives. That's the picture that we have here. We get baptized as well. It opens, it creates an open heaven over your life. How many of you want to live under an open heaven? When you give your life to Jesus, when you put your faith in Jesus, when you believe in him, it opens heaven over your life. The power and the anointing of God will rest upon your life. If you put your faith, if you ask, if you look to him, God's power is there. So be empowered. So believe, be empowered. And finally, we see here we are beloved in the process. Look at verse 11 again. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Take note of when God the Father speaks this over Jesus. When is it? When, when does God say this over Jesus? What has just taken place? Baptism. Baptism. And what has Jesus done so far in his public ministry? Nothing. Zero. He's done squat. No, he hasn't even done a squat. He's done nothing for God. He's done zero. He's done nothing for his public ministry. He's, he hasn't done anything. He's just getting started. That's what baptism is a picture of. It's your start. It's the starting point. He's 30 years old at this point, and he hasn't done any sort. There's been no miracles done. There's been nothing. In the same way, baptism for us is a picture of our start, of our walk with Jesus. You get saved. The Bible says then you get baptized. 
It's a picture of our beginning. And what have you done for Jesus at the beginning of your baptism? What have you done for Jesus when you're baptized? Squat. You haven't even done squat, Kevin. (laughs) Done nothing. You've done nothing. Do you see the picture here? And what does God say? God says, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. I am pleased with you. We might think God would never say that to me. God would never say that to me. We, we have this picture where God's probably more like up in heaven with his arms folded and he's kind of got this scowl and he's kind of looking at us, tapping his foot. One more time. You do that one more time. Right, just waiting. You're like, that's this kind of the picture that we have. That's not God. That's not God. It says here, if you have put your faith in him, if you have begun to say, I want to live for you, Jesus, right away he says, you know what? You're my beloved son. You're my beloved daughter. I'm well pleased with you. Why? Because you're so great? No. It's because we find our identity in Jesus Christ. We are identified with him. Because Jesus is beloved, you are beloved. Because because God is well pleased with Jesus, God is well pleased with you. If we are in Christ, we have all those things. You know, in fact, Romans chapter 1 verse 7, Paul's writing to the Christians, to the church in Rome. Look at what he says. He says, To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints. He's talking about Christians here. People that have put their faith in Jesus. And he uses the identical word. I looked it up in the Greek. It's the same word identically that the Father uses for Jesus that Paul here writes about Christians. That if you're a follower of Jesus, you are beloved of God. It's the same word. You know why? Because you're in Christ. You're in Christ. It's the bottom line. As we close this morning, as we transition to communion, you need to know this, that God loved you before he even made the world. He chose you before he made the world. Sin messed everything up. That's the problem. Sin screwed it all up. That's why Jesus had to come. That's why he had to identify with us in every way. And one of the ways now that we as Christians identify with Jesus is through baptism, but it's also through something that we call communion. Communion. The word communion has the word common in it. We now have this in common with Jesus, that his death is applied to our life. His resurrection is applied to our life. And so communion is for those, just like baptism, it's for those that have believed upon Jesus. It's not for those that are perfect or that have it all figured out. It's for those that have put their life in Christ's hands. And it's how we remember now the death and the resurrection, how we identify with him in it. How we identify with him that the promise that he's coming back again one day to to make all things right, to rule and reign, to make an end to sin forever. As the the teams come back up, we're going to be serving communion to you guys this morning. So I'd invite the communion teams and also the worship team if they would join me up front. You need to know this morning, God has set you up. He's prepared the way for you. Have you believed on him? Have you put your faith in him? I want to invite you this morning to come, to put your faith in Jesus, to believe on him. And maybe you have believed on him. Then I I want to invite you to come, to be empowered, to lay down your sin, to lay down your struggles and receive his strength to be beloved by him today, to be reminded of this love that he has for you. And and I just, this morning, as we conclude this morning, 
I want to give you that invitation right now before we even receive the communion. That if you have not put your faith in Jesus, today can be that day. That you can come and you can partake in the life, the death and the life of Jesus Christ, represented here by this juice and this bread. And so if you're here this morning, I just invite all of us now just to prepare our hearts as the team begins to play, as we prepare our hearts for just coming to the Lord's table this morning to say, God, I have this now in common with you. I am joined with Jesus. And so, Lord, if there's anybody here this morning that would be in this place that doesn't know you or joining us online that does not yet know you, that does not have their, that have not put their faith in you, that have not turned from their sins, not recognized humbly that I am not perfect, but Jesus, you are. And if I put my faith and my life in you, I can participate. I can have this in common with you, your death and your resurrection, the price you paid for my sin that I should have paid. If you're joining us here this morning and you want to come and have that in common with Jesus, I want to invite you to do that today. And you can just pray a simple prayer to saying, God, I recognize that I've messed up. I've made mistakes. I'm a sinner. I'm not close to your standard of perfection. But I, I don't understand everything, but I understand that you died and you gave your life for me in my place so that I could now have life in you forever, for eternity even. That you paid the price that I could never pay. And you can just pray something along those lines and saying, Jesus, I just choose to trust and to believe you to put my hope and my life in you. And if you pray that prayer this morning, you need to come and take communion with us today because you take part now in the life of Christ. And maybe you're here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus, but you say, man, I struggle. I struggle. Then you need to be empowered today. You need to come again. Come and receive of the work that he did for you and say, Jesus, I need your Holy Spirit. I know that you gave me new life. Now I need the power to live that new life because I can't do it anymore in myself. So Lord, prepare our hearts. Lord, what is it that you're, even now, maybe you're just saying, give that to me. Give that over to me. Let me take that. Just reveal and show us, God. Speak to us, Lord, about those areas in our lives that that are going to destroy, that are going to, instead of giving life, they're going to take life. Lord, we want to hand those over to you. We, we say, forgive us, Lord. We're sorry. Thanks for listening to the podcast from Duncan Pentecostal Church, located here in Duncan, British Columbia, on beautiful Vancouver Island. At DPC, we believe in teaching the whole Bible to build whole believers who can impact the whole world. For more information about us, find us online at www.duncanchurch.com or find us on Facebook and YouTube by searching Duncan Pentecostal Church. Have a great day.